Hello and welcome to the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. The big news this week, my deliverance from the icy waters of the west of Scotland aside, was an article written for The Economist by General Valery Zaluzhny, the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, that seemed to suggest the counteroffensive had run out of steam and that the war had moved from one of movement to one of deadlock. Yet at the same time, perhaps aware that Zaluzhny's message was being interpreted by Western analysts as too negative, President Volodymyr Zelensky has insisted that the war in Ukraine is not in deadlock and that there is no pressure on his government from Western allies to enter into peace negotiations with Russia. Various developments on the battlefield seem to confirm this. In a potentially significant move, Ukrainian forces have transferred a limited number of armoured vehicles to the east, that is the left bank of the Dnipro in the Kherson Oblast, where they'd already established a bridgehead Uh, Ukrainian forces are continuing to make small gains near Bakhmut and in western Zaporizhia, and Ukraine has carried out another successful missile attack on a Russian warship, this time using a French scalp missile uh, to seriously damage a brand new corvette in Kerch on the Crimean Peninsula. Meanwhile, the Russians continue to bang their heads against a brick wall in Avdivka near Donetsk City, and Ukrainian special forces, or possibly partisans, have used a car bomb in occupied Luhansk to kill separatist politician Mikhail Filipponenko, the former head of the Luhansk local militia that's been fighting against Kyiv since 2014. We'll be discussing the implications of all of this and the news that Brussels had recommended opening formal EU membership negotiations with Ukraine earlier this week. But first, let's start with that article written by General Zaluzhny and try to make some sense of it. Well, the thrust of Zaluzhny's argument was that the ground war between Ukraine and Russia has evolved from one of movement in 2022 to a positional contest in 2023. And by positional, he means the front lines hardly moving. And he compares this to the trench warfare of the First World War, when defence, of course, had the upper hand, as it appears to have now. A lot of Western analysts took this to be an admission that the war was now at a stalemate and that a negotiated peace was the only option. In fact, what Zelushny was trying to discuss was what Ukraine needed to end this phase of positional warfare and return to one of manoeuvre, which would allow Ukrainians, of course, to liberate more of their territory. Now, he makes a number of suggestions, very few of which have I've noticed have been properly reported by the Western press. But by far the most important is the need for Ukraine to gain some kind of air superiority over the battlefield partly with the addition of F-16 fighters, but in the short term by using UAVs or aerial drones to overwhelm Russian air defences. He also talks about the need to strengthen Ukrainian counter-battery and electronic warfare capabilities. Interestingly, he makes no mention of armour, and this is what our good friend of the podcast, analyst Phil O'Brien, has to say. In other words, he is basically admitting that modern manoeuvre warfare is about trying to do everything possible to protect the vulnerable tank, to give it a chance to advance. Well, all this was far too nuanced for the Western press, hence President Zelensky's intervention. But what actually did he say, Patrick? Well, he used a meeting with Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, to insist that that although, quotes, time has passed and people are tired, the war was not a stalemate. He added, no one among our partners is pressuring us to sit down with Russia, talk to it and give it something. So he's trying to head off, I suppose, any talk of negotiations being the only way to conclude the war, given the, let's face it, relatively disappointing results of the Ukrainian 
counteroffensive, which, as we've said before, has produced relatively meagre gains after six months now of heavy fighting. Now, this is already happening. Jonathan Ayle, the associate director of RUSI, said Zelensky now had two choices, to reorganize over the winter and try again next year, or, quotes, to accept that they are going to end up with less territory than they had in February last year. And this, uh, says Ale, is, quotes, equivalent to saying that although Putin failed at his major objective of occupying all of Ukraine, he succeeded in taking a big bite of it. Saul, what's your reading of this? Well, as you know, Patrick, the eternal optimist. I mean, it's interesting that uh, we've had a couple of mentions from listeners saying that there was a, a note of pessimism creeping into the podcast. And that may have been down to the fact that I, I wasn't here last week. But, um, you know, uh, levity aside, it's still too early to suggest the counteroffensive has failed, in my view, or even that it will stop for the winter. As we said at the top, this week saw the movement of Ukrainian armoured vehicles into their bridgehead on the east or left bank of the Dnipro River in Kesson Oblast, which might well, in the long run, lead to a breakout there. Time will tell. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces continue, as you said, Patrick, to advance near Bakhmut and Melitopol, with one Russian mill blogger claiming that Ukrainian troops crossed the railway near Andrivka, 10 kilometers southwest of Bakhmut, and another claiming that they were entrenched in forest areas near Verbove. The same mill blogger noted that a lack of Russian control in the airspace near Verbove is complicating Russian artillery fire on these positions, which is exactly the tactic, local air superiority, that Zeluzhny was hoping to achieve. But we also need to challenge those deluded analysts who built up the Russian army before the war and seemed determined to justify themselves by arguing that Ukraine now can't win and must relinquish at least some territory to end the war. Ukraine can win the war and must. We just have to give it the military hardware it needs to do the job. And I turn once again to Phil O'Brien, who put it best when he wrote, not arming Ukraine to win the war will be a catastrophe and will interject long-term instability into Europe. We have a chance to basically end the European security question for decades by having Ukraine win and getting the country into NATO and the EU. If this opportunity is not grasped, it will be a failure of historic proportions. And as we said at the top, of course, this uh, th these last two points that Phil's calling for do seem to be, or at least the EU membership does seem to be one step closer because uh, Brussels, as we say, has recommended opening formal EU membership negotiations. This is, of course, going to take time. Uh, there are seven preconditions that need to be met. Four have been met. Another three need to be met. All of this is presumably going to take place once the war itself is over. But there is a precedent for actually starting the process for EU membership before the war is over. And that, of course, is Cyprus, which, of course, has been divided. So it's possible that at least a part of Ukraine can become an EU member before the war is finally over. But Patrick, what's your broader take on whether or not there is still a possibility for Ukraine to win this war? Well, I, you know, I don't know any more than anyone else does. But the person who really does know is... Uh, Valerie Zeluzhny, and I'm afraid, Saul, at this point, I'm going to put on the black cap and do my <laughs> doomster uh, routine because um, I read the interview in the um, in the Economist, and I must admit I was pretty uh, shaken by how brutally Frank Zeluzhny was being. What I heard in that interview was a deep note of pessimism. You know, he says, 
openly. He's actually he's a very very smart guy, and his analysis is was was I thought brilliant. And he says openly that he believes there's a parity of technology on the battlefield now, which means that each side can prevent the other from breaking through. And he, he describes Avdivka uh, recently when he saw on the monitor screens, presumably at the HQ, uh, 140, 140 Russian armoured vehicles being destroyed in the space of four hours by artillery alone. And then when they were beaten back and they were they were fleeing, and they're then pursued by explosive-carrying drones that simply smash into them. Now, this all sounds great from a Ukrainian perspective, but the trouble is, as he points out, that the same thing would happen to the Ukrainians if they were to launch a major attack. So he says, the simple fact is, this is in quotes, the simple fact is that we can see everything the enemy is doing and they can see everything that we are doing. So there's deadlock. Um, and this is the word that really annoyed Zelensky. And he says, in order to break the deadlock, they need something like the gunpowder that the Chinese invented and which we are still using to kill each other today. But in this case, it's not a single thing he's envisaging, but a combination of very high tech, even higher technology drones coupled with electronic warfare, anti-artillery capability, demining robots, all this sort of stuff. Interesting, he's had talks with Eric Schmidt, the former chief executive of Google, about all this. But the truth is that these innovations are still in development. They're not just waiting there to be taken off the shelf. He also is quite gloomy about the F-16, saying they're not going to make a great deal of difference when they at last they get to the battlefield, which probably won't be until next year. The Russians have been improving their air defense systems. They've got, you know, even though a lot of S-400, you know, their anti-missile, ground-to-air anti-aircraft missile, their systems have been taken out, they've still got some, and they've got an improved version. And, you know, all the expert analysis is that F-16s are actually pretty vulnerable to these. So on and on we go. And, and just to finish, sorry, I've been going on a bit, but he says, in a war of attrition, which is what we're beginning to see now, if it goes on, the advantage obviously will tilt towards Russia, as he says, let's be honest, it's a feudal state where the cheapest resource is human life. And for us, the most expensive thing we have is our people. So he says, unless there is this um, you know, 21st century equivalent of gunpowder arriving on the scene on the Ukrainian side, he says, sooner or later, we're going to find that we simply don't have people to fight. Now, these remarks clearly were unwelcome, Saul, because they produced an immediate rebuke from the president's office saying, you know, this actually helps Russia. So what do you make of all that? Yeah, well, we both got a slightly different take. I mean, uh, interesting enough, Patrick, the, the sources that came through The Economist are in two forms. One is a very long 8,000-word essay that was largely penned by Zaluzhny or possibly members of his staff. And the other was actually an interview he gave to The Economist. So there's a slightly different nuance in, in the two of those. And I think a lot of the, the material you're talking about came from the interview with Zaluzhny, which nevertheless is obviously what he was thinking at the time. And the essay, uh, which is really what I was quoting from, is you know a slightly more ordered and slightly less pessimistic view. What do we need to do in the future? What have we already got and what do we need? So you and I have both got slightly different takes on this, but we've got slightly different takes, probably because of our temperaments on the war more generally. And there's nothing wrong with that, not least because we've had a number of people, uh, listeners uh, writing in and saying, well, you know, you're far too optimistic about what's going on. And I know my brother sitting in South Africa feels that with his sort of 
bricks view of things. Um, so he'd probably agree more with your take on this, Patrick. But nevertheless, I am of the opinion that it's not over yet. The war will continue during the winter. This uh, development over the Dnipro is significant. And we've got to wait and see. It's madness, really, to anticipate what's inevitably going to happen. But we can, uh, you know, at least lay out a number of possibilities. Yeah, no, no, I, I can. I think it's good to have a bit of divergence of views on that. But just on something else, all um, the actual business of a general, or you know, the, the top general speaking out like this. I was thinking about, you know, generals don't necessarily get on with their political leaders. In, in fact, most of the time they don't. I'm thinking, of course, of Churchill and his generals, uh, who all kind of regarded him as a sort of well-meaning but incompetent amateur who was always sort of butting in with his brilliant analysis of of the war situation and coming up with all sorts of madcap ideas about what they should be doing. But if you read Alan Brooks' diaries, they're full of unflattering remarks about his boss. But of course, he did actually keep them to himself. I mean, he might, have, you know, in the over the mess table, he might uh, share them with his with his fellow brass. But he didn't actually go public with them. What do you think is actually happening here? With you know, he, this is clearly a calculation, isn't it? By Zeluzhny, he. It's a pretty sort of public intervention. Do you think that means there's there's real friction at the top there? Yeah, potentially. And also, it's a dangerous uh, line to go down for Zeluzhny. I mean, after all, he is sackable by uh, Zelensky. I wouldn't advise it, frankly, because, of course, Zeluzhny is a highly effective commander. So he may feel he's relatively safe in that sense. But this undoubtedly, Patrick, was uh, a foray almost into politics. And Zeluzhny has to be careful. That's not his area. Uh, His area is a grand strategy. It, It, of course, coincides with politics. But he must be careful to understand that in the end, he takes his orders from his political masters. And that, of course, includes Zelensky. So, but this reminds me of a couple of instances in history when generals do overstep the mark. I mean, infamously during the Korean War, when MacArthur uh, really is quite prepared to cross the boundary almost into China, uh, thinking that the Chinese are never going to get involved. And of course, they do come into the war. That has very clear political as well as military ramifications. And even more recently, um, General Dannett, our chief of general staff in about 2007, I think it was, came out with a very public statement saying that the British army couldn't possibly fight two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that was seen as a foray into the political world that ultimately probably cost him the chief of the defense staff. So I think generals do have to be careful. Zelushny, no doubt, would say, well, actually, he's just talking about purely military matters here, and this is not getting into politics. But I think we can all agree that it it sort of is. Yeah. And the other great one, of course, is um, George Patton, who was couldn't keep his mouth shut. Uh, a lot of what he said, actually, there is a sort of certain rough truth in it. And of course, the famous one was uh, at the end of the Second World War, he said, we were fighting the wrong enemy. I mean, I, I don't agree with him about that. But he said the real enemy was uh, was Russia. <laughs> and those were the sons of bitches we should have been getting on, which he was severely slapped. I think he would have been potentially would have had political ambitions, but uh, perhaps mercifully for America, he was killed in a car crash before uh, he could return home and, and start uh, his presidential campaign. Anyway, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, so I'm going to quote a few things here that uh, from the Russian side, which suggests that all is not going well for them. Our old friend Igor Gherkin, who's now banged up in jail, having overstepped the mark himself in a Russian jail, in a letter released by his wife, presumably he was speaking very frankly to, he said, Russian forces 
will be even less capable of offensive operations than they are now because of this, as you characterized it, head bashing against wall uh, operations going on at the moment in Advivka. And he says that uh, to his missus that the situation for Russian forces is gradually deteriorating and there's growing weakness compared to Ukraine's capability. So he's actually a bit more optimistic um, than, than the Ukrainian head of the army is. But he does actually say that, you know, Russia did was generally successful in, in repelling, rep, repulsing the Ukrainian offensives over the summer and the fall of 2023. And we've got that, um, you know, spectacular strike, another one on uh, Crimea, when uh, Ukraine used a scalp uh, missile, which is, you know, long-range cruise missile like our Storm Shadow to damage the Askold. Now, I don't know whether Askold Kushelnitsky, who listeners will remember, is a very good friend of the podcast, knows that. I don't think he's going to be very happy that the Russians have named a ship after his rather unusual name. Uh, anyway, that um, the Askold was a brand-new Corvette, capable of, of launching caliber missiles, and it was just um, completing its fitting out in the Zaliv shipyard in Kerch in the Crimea, the Russian fleet's been taking a hell of a battering over the last few months, and this will almost certainly encourage them to continue moving more of its uh, naval assets further east, thus essentially relinquishing naval control of the western part of the Black Sea. And this was followed on Wednesday by the news that Mikhail Filipenenko, as we said at the top, a Russian-backed politician and former militia commander, has been killed in occupied Luhansk by a car bomb. Uh, no one has yet claimed responsibility, but I think we can draw our own conclusions. On the other hand, and this is bad news for Ukraine, uh, President Zelensky is said to be furious about the loss of 19 members of Ukraine's 128th separate mountain assault brigade who were killed, it's hard to believe, when a Russian missile struck an open-air award ceremony. So these guys were basically getting medals, but it was very close to the front lines, just 10 miles away. And it was a tragedy, according to Zelensky, that should have been avoided and criminal proceedings have been initiated. So he's angry with Zeluzhny, but he's also angry with these kind of mid-ranking commanders who were foolish enough to organise this parade in the daytime, and they were obviously spotted by the Russians. Yeah, it does sound tragically stupid decision. All right, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering another fascinating crop of listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, we're going to open with a question from Mark, who says, I'm a regular listener to your podcast, and I've benefited greatly from your significant knowledge and insight on the developing circumstances in the Ukraine conflict. I also appreciate that you're now sharing similar knowledge with regards to the ongoing crisis in Israel-Gaza. But he has a query, uh, Mark. He says, is it possible that by expanding your podcast to cover the ongoing developments in Israel-Gaza, you may be playing into the hands of the Russians? If Russia's possible influence on events in Gaza is intended to distract onlookers from their failures and atrocities in Ukraine, could Putin's first success have been to distract you and your intended focus in Ukraine. Well, I mean, certainly this is this is a big element in the story, isn't it, uh, Saul, that the Russians are certainly delighted that the world's attention has switched away from Ukraine and on to Gaza. But on the point about our little part in all this, what do you think? 
Mark's absolutely right to raise the concern that, you know, is is the West in general and us in particular being distracted from, you know, our focus on Ukraine. And the broader uh, answer to that is, yes, we are getting distracted. I mean, if you look at the the mainstream press, Patrick, there's, you know, you really have to look quite hard to find stories about Ukraine. It's all about Hamas, Gaza and Israel at the moment. So that is a concern. uh, And yet, uh, as we've already explained on the podcast, we're not going to abandon Ukraine. Uh, the Friday episode will, will continue its concentration on what's going on there. And yet at the same time, we feel it's necessary to look at Gaza too. It's a, you know, it's a massive news story around the world. It's right in our wheelhouse, frankly. Patrick was a former correspondent based in Jerusalem. So we feel we do have some insight into what's going on there. And we're not the only ones who feel that, actually, because we got a message from Frederick in London. He's a, a chartered civil engineer. And he says, I think the pod is covering the complex Gaza conflict in a thoughtful and balanced way. And the pod has really added to my understanding of the issues. I appreciate it's a difficult conflict to cover and it's easy to attract criticism from one side or both. Uh, He also says, uh, like Mark, my initial impression was that it might not sit well alongside Russia's war with Ukraine as they are both very different. But actually, the contrasts and comparisons have been helpful to understanding both. And I think, you know, the longer this goes on, Patrick, the more both of us realize that while there may not be an absolutely direct connection in the sense that, you know, Putin is behind the war in Gaza, Israel, the links are obviously there and the benefits and and reverberations are are clear on both sides. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, Saul. Sort of linked to this really is, is Bucky Lee Turk Jr. from Texas. That sounds like a very Texan name, if I may say. He's responding to an earlier query, I think it was last week, or a comment from a listener. I think it was probably our Irish friend, wasn't it, who was was uh, pointing out the lack of condemnation of Israel's bombing campaign in Gaza versus Russia's campaign in Ukraine. But he says that uh, I've noticed just the opposite type of response to bombing of schools, uh, heat generation facilities, dams, etc., etc., many other civilian facilities and Ukraine was ignored by just those uh, who are now screaming about the destruction in Gaza. Where have they been for the last 600 plus days, he asks. Well, it sort of depends on what voices you're listening to, doesn't it? You do get so ideologically minded people uh, do tend to sort of um, pick their things to get worked up about. And they don't see tend to see things in a sort of holistic way. So they tend to choose the conflicts and the situations and the stories that reinforce their own worldview. So you're not really going to get much consistency. Uh, we've got a very uh, technical question here from Anders in Sweden, and he's just seen some clips on Telegram showing destroyed Russian tanks and armored vehicles. Now, these were filmed by drones. Now, Anders' question, in essence, is what, you know, what is the range of these drones? What happens when the tanks return to their home base? Are they then vulnerable where they are parked up, essentially, to drone attacks. So what do you know about that, Saul? Well, traditionally, Patrick, as you will know too, um, tanks are kept in lagers when they're not actually in the field in battle. They're sort of hidden away behind the lines, really, in effect. And in this type of warfare, they will be using all kinds of camouflage. I mean, frankly, they'll be dispersing their armour when they're not being used in operation. So they'll be further back from the lines. They'll be kept 
just one or two in each particular position, and they'll be heavily camouflaged. And the question Anders asks is, why can't you send drones in to take them out? Well, of course you can, and they'll be trying to do that all the time. And they have had a certain amount of success with that. But you have to remember that drones are vulnerable themselves. The Russians have got much better electronic warfare. That is the jamming of the drone signal to bring them down. Also, they can be taken down with small arms fire and small rockets too. So it's really a balance. I mean, the further behind the lines you keep the tanks, the safer they are for obvious reasons, because the drones will be picked off before they can get there. So that, in a nutshell, is what's what's happening. But as we can see from the Zeluzhny example you gave earlier, Patrick, when armoured vehicles do get even close to or ahead of the front line, they are highly vulnerable. I mean, what was the statistic you gave or that he uh, insisted on? 140 armoured vehicles knocked out uh, in one single day. And even if that's an exaggeration, we know that the Russians have lost enormous numbers of armoured vehicles. And of course, exactly the same would be happening to the Ukrainians if they were using their Western armour. We're often asked, why are they not using more of the Western armour they've been given? Well, it's for that very reason. You can only logically use them now in a breakthrough scenario once you're actually through these main layers of defence and and the Russians effectively are on the run. That seems to me the only time when they are vaguely safe from aerial attack. Yeah. Now, this is um, a question from Dave in Texas, and it's something that clearly everyone's thinking about now as the winter, well, it's not approaching, it's actually there, in particularly in eastern Ukraine when it comes early and it clings on for a long time. And Dave is asking, is it reasonable to expect that Russian troops will be as successful in replenishing its defences, i.e. laying minefields, digging trenches, repairing trenches, improving trenches, Uh, this winter as it was uh, last winter. Now, this is a big question, isn't it, Saul? I mean, you must have been giving it some thought. Well, on that point, Patrick, I think one of the reasons why the Ukrainians will be uh, loath to pause too long during the winter is for that very reason. It will give the Russians a chance to dig in and improve their defences. And and we will remember, of course, a lot of the criticism coming out of the Ukrainian armed forces in relation to their Western allies is that it took them too long to give them the kit, the tanks and and ammunition for them to launch their counteroffensive in the first place. It didn't take place in the summer, as we were recall. And uh, the consequence of that was that the Russians had created these very effective defensive systems. So my feeling is that the Ukrainians are going to continue hammering away, maybe not all through the winter, but without an obvious pause to prevent that from happening. Um, Dave also raises another question about the F-16s. And he's saying, how many F-16s would be needed to materially improve uh, the situation for Ukraine? And basically add some significant value to the 2024 ground offensive. Are the current F-16 commitments close to this number? Well, I think this F-16 story really plays into the bigger story, the thing that troubles Phil O'Brien and troubles you, Saul, which is this sort of drip feeding of equipment to Ukraine, which has been going on from the West from the very beginning. And I think we have to actually accept that the American strategy all along has been to give Ukraine enough to prevent its defeat, but not uh, sufficient to actually guarantee its victory, uh, all with a sort of grand strategic intention of not provoking Russia to the point where the thing from an American point of view gets completely out of hand. And I think we both agree that is a very short-sighted policy and it could end up 
not disastrously, but just uh, basically giving the West a, a future of instability, of uncertainty, of just having to deal with this Russian threat uh, for the foreseeable future until there's significant regime change in Moscow, which actually brings about a change at the top, which is more willing to engage with the West, less paranoid and generally more stable. So, yeah, I mean, it was a bad decision. But to get back to the specifics of the F-16, I'm afraid the truth is that they're not going to make a huge amount of difference. As far as I can see, Saul, you may disagree. They're only just trickling in there. I think there's um, a handful are actually in there. They're not even flyable at the moment. They're still being assembled. Some more will arrive early in the new year. But we're talking about very small numbers. I mean, I think, the, is it the Danish ones were the first to arrive? We're talking about nine, and then there, there are more Dutch on the way, et cetera, et cetera. So, and even if they do actually become operational, they do face a significant threat from uh, Russian air defenses. These S-400s apparently are perfectly capable of taking out an F-16. F-16 is quite old aircraft, comparatively speaking. And if it's true that the, the Russians are upgrading their S-400s, then they'd probably be fairly easy meat, I'm afraid, for the, those uh, SAMs. You have got your pessimistic head on today, haven't you, Patrick? I mean, if we remember, <laughs> we did have an expert who, who who told us what the F-16 was capable of, and it has a, you know, kind of multiple different roles, the part it can play. Is it an absolute game changer for the war? Well, uh, we're also told that the key to armoured warfare, if tanks are going to come back into play, is is air cover. So I'm not quite as pessimistic as, as you, Patrick, that they aren't going to make that much of a difference, and therefore we needn't be too concerned about them. I think people in the know have said these should have been got there a lot sooner. And in any case, we are never going to know until they are there. Will they be there in any numbers, I think, is, is really the question anytime soon. No, neither of us believe that. So uh, the answer to this question could be quite a few months off. Okay, question from William in The Hague in Holland, very close to James, of course. I feel a bit like your podcast emphasizes all of Russia's problems, as does the Western press, high losses, pointless human waves, attacks, rearguard enforcement units, poor morale. I don't doubt, says William, the accuracy of any of these points individually, but all of these negative reports about Russia leave the impression of an army uh, not about to collapse, but one that should have collapsed with a slight nudge way back in May or June. And as we know, the opposite has happened. The Russians have fairly stiffly and with tactical skill, see a recent Rusi report, defended the front while going on the offensive in some areas. In terms of the offensive, it was not one weak push that fell apart, but continuous attacks. Failed and pointless, perhaps, but this does not seem like an army that does everything wrong and has nothing going for it. Patrick, what's your response to that? Well, I think, uh, William, your, your list of, of the failings of the Russian military is pretty impressive, isn't it? High losses, pointless human wave attacks, rearguard enforcement units, i.e. people are going to shoot you if you actually abandon your position, poor morale. I mean, I think that does actually, you know, is that pretty much the whole picture. Yes, they have shown a surprising degree of resolve, I suppose you could say, in holding on to those positions. That's not actually that difficult to do. It doesn't take a huge amount of military skill uh, to be sitting behind your anti-tank missile in a trench or your machine gun or whatever, your mortar, whatever it is, or your artillery position and pull the trigger, press the button. And I think, you know, pretty poor level troops can carry out a defensive operation pretty successfully uh, in given those circumstances, given the strength of the defences. So, I still believe that um, they're from at every level, from the from the top downwards, 
the Russian military is, is pretty incompetent, but it's not being asked to do anything particularly difficult. I think we come back to that, to what General Zaluzhny said about the disregard for human life, which uh, seems to permeate, permeate the the Russian military psyche. And um, so as long as the troops are prepared to be sacrificed, then they are in a pretty strong position. But, you know, that's been the question we've asked ourselves over and over again, hasn't it, Saul? How long can this go on, this this squandering of human lives without there being a, a breakdown, a discipline, a total collapse of morale, and basically the R- Russian cannon fodder deciding that they've had enough? Uh, it's a mystery to me why this hasn't come yet. Who knows? It's uh, a winter, grim winter lying ahead. Perhaps we'll see it then. Okay, let's finish with this last question from Richard Lewis. Um, With Poland rapidly arming itself to the teeth, how will Poland's newly reinvigorated military affect the conflict as it moves into the second year? I mean, I'm loath to answer this without Roger, actually, Patrick. We need him back uh, as quickly as possible. But I'll I'll give it a go. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it, that there are there is a lot of tension still between Poland and Ukraine. And when I asked Roger about this off air, so to speak. He said, well, of course, it's been there. You know, there are historical differences between the two countries. And you could say no love lost between them. And yet at the same time, certainly as far as security concerns with regard to Russia are concerned, they are very much on the same side. And, you know, in my view, Poland's reinvigorated military allied, of course, to this veteran force albeit, you know, sadly depleted in Ukraine, you know, makes a pretty strong bulwark in the center of Europe against any future ambitions that the Russians might have. So it can only be a good thing for NATO, I think. I mean, if Richard's sort of underlying question is, is there a chance Poland might get directly involved itself? I don't think that's that's likely at all. It's all for one and one for all as far as NATO's concerned. So Poland's not going to get involved independently. But if Poland is attacked in some way or any of the other NATO countries, then Poland's more powerful military will be of great assistance to NATO and Western security more generally. Absolutely. Well, that's enough from us for this week. Do join us on Wednesday when we'll be returning uh, to Gaza to discuss all the latest developments there. Goodbye.